This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. I begin this way because I believe it's a good metaphor for what's happening right now in the Western church. In fact, in far too many churches in the West, I believe something has come in. It's landed right in front of us, maybe even right on us. We've left it alone because we thought maybe it would just soon or later go away. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Today, we have yet another episode in our series titled Pursuing Jesus. Today's message is based on the well known parable found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the Good Samaritan. Pastor Jeff uses this message to cover a lot of ground, including power, idols, the modern Western church, and Jesus' response to authorities. Wow, this is gonna be a power-packed episode that I can't wait to listen to you with. Let's hear how all of this fits together. Here's Pastor Jeff. Follow along, if you would, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, one of the most popular parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And as we've said before, the Bible is always incredibly relevant to our lives, but there are times when there is such a dramatic shift in culture, in what is accepted, that a certain passage of Scripture can bring on new meaning, uh, can be especially relevant to us as Christ followers. Luke chapter 10 is such the case. We'll get to that in a moment. While you're turning, Luke 10, 25, uh, something interesting happened last week. I went up to uh, Lake Arrowhead, I was going to spend a few hours with a couple of our teams or one of our teams, a creative team. And uh, while I was there, there's a, a golf course called Lake Arrowhead Country Club, and it's a very private. Uh, but if you make a phone call, you might get lucky and be able to play. So I thought, well, you know, I'm up here and the guys aren't going to be ready till later. So I'll sneak out early and I'll, I'll play around the golf. On about the third or fourth hole, um, a wasp, not, not really a bee, but a wasp landed on my knee. Now, uh, I live in Upland, which is not too far uh, from the San Dimas campus, and there are yellow jackets that nest in the hedge every summer, but we just leave them alone. Uh, I'll be in the pool, uh, just kind of relaxing, taking a nap, and often these yellow jackets will land, and I just leave them alone. Usually they'll just sniff around or maybe get a drink of water out of the pool or maybe they're attracted to the suntan lotion. I don't know. But they'll land on my knee and it feels kind of weird and they'll crawl around a little bit, but I don't swat at them. I don't want to make them angry. And eventually they go away. So I assumed that I could treat the wasp the same way. So I'm talking to my buddy Rick Reed as we're playing this round of golf. The wasp lands, we both see it, but I don't do anything. I figure he'll just do what he's going to do and fly away. That little rogue bee stung me. Uh, I didn't swat at it. I didn't make any sudden movements. He just decided he was going to sting. And I had forgotten. It's been a long time since I've been stung by a wasp. It really hurts. And then I was angry. 
I was thinking, you know, I didn't even swat at you. I made no sudden movements and you still stung me. Of course, you know, when a wasp stings you, he loses his life. And so I'm thinking, how many rogue bees are there? Maybe even in my hedge. I know that's not a big experience to you, but I still, you know, I talked to my wife about it. I thought, you know, I can't believe this wasp stung me. You know, how, how honorary of this wasp, I didn't do anything and it releases the stinger. And of course my knee hurt, swole up uh, and it, I was in pain the rest of the day. Now, I begin this way because I believe it's a good metaphor for what's happening right now in the Western church. In fact, in far too many churches in the West, I believe something has come in. It's landed right in front of us, maybe even right on us. We've left it alone because we thought maybe it would just soon or later go away. Now, what we haven't talked about is in any culture where God is locked out, three things will fill the vacuum. One, first, and they come in this order. First, sex, then money, and then power. Now, stay with me for just a moment here. No matter who you are, you will never shame me into silence. I love this country, even with all of its sins and offensive. Can I remind you that Jesus loves you with all your sins and offenses? I recognize that we are not perfect, but unlike so many others, I also recognize the enormous good that has come about from this nation. Those who have never lived outside the U.S., have no true understanding of the oppression and lack of opportunity that exists in most places, not all, but most other places, not to mention the religious freedom. However, and I've stated this in many messages, my hope and security and salvation are not in the stability and the success of this nation. Am I saddened by what's going on? Yes, we are divided and a house divided will not stand. Is this a sinless nation? There's no such thing. You know why? Because people are always involved. And the Bible said there's no one righteous, no, not one. I would extrapolate that over to the corporate. There are no righteous nations, no, not one. Has America done some good things? You bet you're red, white, and blue they have. Have they done any evil? Of course they have. Exhibit A, the 60s and 70s. Have they often righted the ship? Probably more so than any other nation. Do they still have a ways to go? Absolutely. And if you've traveled the globe, somewhere along the line, you begin to understand that most people in other places, not every place, but most people, no matter where you go, I was just in Turkey recently, most people will say, with all of her weaknesses, I still want to go to America, the land of opportunity, the land of human value, the land of unparalleled opportunity. Okay, Pastor Jeff, I, thanks for the speech, but what does this have to do with the beasting metaphor? One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. Now, you tell me, right now in America, are we not living in fear? When we center our lives on an idol, we become so dependent on it that when it is threatened, we panic and we say things like, that's the end. I might as well throw in the towel. There's no hope. While it's not a surprise to me that many in Hollywood, when things don't go their way, politically speaking, say things like, there's no hope. I'm moving to Canada. If our policies and our people are not in power, then everything's gonna fall apart. There's no use going on with life and living. It's the end of all hope and security. I may as well give up and get out. 
And then they'll say something like, as soon as New Zealand or Australia or Canada open up their borders, I'm going to go there. (laughs) I think, do you not see the irony? This also explains why that the political parties in this nation refuse to admit how much they have in common right now. Instead, they focus on the disagreements. And the reason points to the fact that power now, rather than sex and money, has become our God. We've grown weary of sex. We've pursued wealth, but it didn't deliver. And now we turn our attention to the third and final God, power, so that political ideologies have moved beyond opinion into the realm of God. These policies will save us. We must put our hope and future and security in this particular party, otherwise we're all doomed. Now, because Hollywood majors in false idols with a minor in creating gods in their own image, placing ultimate hope in a political ideology doesn't surprise me. But there's a bee with a powerful sting that has now crept into the church. My father, when Reagan, Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter, most of you weren't alive during that time, but in 1980, Ronald Reagan defeated Carter. My father, like a lot of Southerners from Atlanta area, voted for Carter because he was from Georgia. And they also believed he was a the common man. He was a peanut farmer. He was a Sunday school teacher. Carter proved to be a very good moral man, but a very bad leader. But after Carter lost the election to Reagan, I remember my father saying, oh, well, guess we better start praying for Reagan now. Now, why would my father do this? Because his ultimate hope was not in the election, but in God and his purpose is coming to fruition in the world. You know, I got to tell you, there have been many times over the last few months that I've gone back to Daniel 4 and I've wondered, do Christ's followers actually believe this or is just, this just a good story that has no relevance to our lives. And it's when Daniel said to the king in Daniel 4, seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. What does that mean? It means that God is the God over all false gods. Now listen carefully. Dutch Canadian philosopher Al Walters, and I know we're out on the fringe momentarily, just stay with me. Dutch-Canadian philosopher Al Walter says this. This is important. It's on the screen. In the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin. And the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. That demonizes something that is not completely bad and makes an idol out of something that cannot be ultimate good. Now, the best way to explain this is to remind you that Republicans and Democrats don't just disagree with each other, they demonize one another. They make an idol out of their policies, believing they are the only things that can truly save. This explains, or should explain to you and me, why there is this constant political cycle of overblown hopes and disillusionment. The increasingly poisonous political discourse and the disproportionate fear and despair when one's political party loses an election. Our real God has been slain. The one in whom we've placed our ultimate hope and security in the past has been vanquished. So now we turn our attention to the false God of power and we think that our security and ultimate hope 
will come from political ideologies. The reason we have turned to political ideologies as a modern God is because modern man feels alienated from God and therefore we got to put our faith and trust in something and nature abhors a vacuum, expel God, something will take his place. Therefore, the passion with which we used to defend God and our faith is now used to defend God and our new faith. Our God is a political ideology. Our religion is our party of choice. Okay, Jeff, okay. But what, what about this current climate has stung you? What about the beast thing? All right, here we go. I'm afraid, I have a genuine concern that I have allowed the bee of political idols to land without confronting it. I, I guess I just figured that if I would leave it alone, it would go away. But I feel it's about to sting us and the church of Jesus Christ in a way that may do irreparable damage, at least in this generation. You say, how? The only way I can fully define that is by allowing Jesus to speak the words of Luke 10, 25. Now, here's what happens. Follow along in the text. The Bible tells us on an occasion, one occasion, an expert in the law, not civil law now, this is, this is not civil legality, but it's religious law. It's a religious scholar. He's an expert in the law of Moses and how that law relates to everyday living. So an expert in the Mosaic law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, or ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So if you know this passage, you know that he's trying to trap Jesus because Jesus is always hanging around with people who are lawbreakers and prostitutes and tax collectors and Gentiles. So the teacher of the law is hoping to expose Jesus as someone who does not respect the law. And that's important because Jesus is becoming quite the influencer. So he asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He expects Jesus probably to say something like this. Well, it doesn't really matter how you live because God ultimately loves and accepts everyone in the end. And then the teacher of the law would say, gotcha. You don't respect the law of Moses or the precepts of the Torah, God's law to man. You can't be trusted. The Jews got to know. But that's not how Jesus responds. Instead, he asks a question in return. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, there are two ways to answer that question. Number one, you can list all 637 precepts. That might take a while. Or two, you can simply give a summary of the law, the bigger picture. In other words, you can say, this is that which the law is primarily and ultimately concerned. This big picture is what the law is about. So he answers, and he answers well. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. I love this in the original language. Do this and you'll live. Now, the lawyer's next question should have been, who on earth can do that? Who can live like that consistently? Help me, Jesus. You think just for, for a moment what that means. Take the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. What is that like? Archbishop William Temple says, wherever your mind goes, that's your religion, your real God, your hope and security is in that thing. So he says, whenever you're alone, whenever you're in isolation, whenever you put down the iPad and the iPhone, whenever there's nothing pressing on you at that moment, maybe you're sitting on a curb waiting for a friend, maybe you're standing in line at the post office, whatever it is that your mind goes to in those moments of isolation, 
William Temple says, that is your real God. And then he asked the question, when you're alone and isolated, does your mind automatically go to the glory of God, the wonder of God? Does your mind start to count your blessings and to think of how blessed you are from a God of wonderful provision? Do you start suddenly yearning to be with God? Do you want to spend a moment with God? Suddenly does your mind go to the reality that God is what you want most out of life and that you will always be content because he is everything that you need. And if you have him, you have it all. William Temple says, you'll know what your faith and trust and security and hope is really in by knowing and identifying that place your mind goes when you're in isolation and alone. Look at the second thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Someone defined that by saying this, loving your neighbor as yourself means meeting the needs of your neighbor with all the passion and compassion, joy, speed, and force with which you would meet your own needs. That's amazing. So you put your happiness in another person's happiness. You put your joy into their joy. Now, I think about that. I can do that with my children and I can do that with my spouse, but my neighbor, you're asking me to be equally happy for my neighbor when he gets promoted? when something good happens in his life, when he gets a raise? Think of that just for a moment. Who can really do that? I mean, as Jesus states this, as the lawyer states this, my thoughts are, that's easy, right? My thoughts don't always go to God. My greatest joy is not tied to my neighbor's success. Who does that? Now, the lawyer's no fool. He knows he doesn't, so what does he do? He wants to lower the standard a little bit, showing himself to be the kind of person who is actually acceptable. Because the lawyer's premise goes like this. God will accept me if I am virtuous enough. So knowing that he doesn't measure up, he wants to narrow this neighbor thing down just a little bit to the minimum standards. Here's what happens in the text. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus says, you're right in your summary. Love God, love your neighbor. Good job. This is indeed the only way to live. But in the original language, it's as if Jesus says, good luck with that. I wish there was a verse 28, one and a half, <laughs> or 28 and a half rather, that would say something like this, that Jesus would say, but since you are delusional and actually think you live this way, let me tell you a story. Now, this story is remarkable because in the story, you have Samaritans versus the Jews. And the best analogy that I can give you in modern day culture to pack a powerful punch is going to be Republicans versus Democrats. 
And a close second will probably be Dodger fans versus Giants fans. Each sees the other, back to the Republicans and the Democrats, the Samaritans and the Jews, each sees the others as oppressors, even blasphemous. In other words, the big picture of the parable, Jesus is saying, I want you to meet the needs of your supposed enemy with such astonishing love that they just will not know what to do with you. I want you to love them at such great cost, generously and sacrificially, that they will need to hear the gospel just to try to make some sense out of your inexplicable life. Jesus looks at the lawyer and he says, let me tell you a story that will explain the essence, the core of all those who would be my disciples. Now, before we get a little bit, digger in, uh, a little bit deeper into the passage, this story is most definitely consistent with other parables, right? Matthew 25, we're told that on the last day, Jesus is gonna separate the sheep and the goats. And if you're a, a first century shepherd, or it doesn't matter when you're a shepherd, but if you're a shepherd, you'll know that from time to time, other animals will sneak into the flock that look like sheep. And the shepherd at one point, at some point has to separate them out. You can't shear a goat. And Jesus said on the last day, there's gonna be this weeding out, the separation between the nominal, by the way, I use that word a lot. A nominal just means something in name only. So you're something in name only, but there are really no dramatic impacts on you from that belief system that you hold. So Jesus says one day there's gonna be a separation between the nominal and the supernatural, those who have had a supernatural experience of God. And if you wanna know the difference between the two, this is what he says. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. That's quite harsh. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. But they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? How did he reply? Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What's Jesus saying? So you have two trees in June. One has fruit, the other does not. Does the fruit give life to the tree? No, the fruit tells you that the tree is alive. The fruit gives you signs of life, proof of life. Jesus says, here's how you know, that a life poured out in mercy and compassion, even to our enemies, or our supposed enemies, or those who oppress us, is a sign that you have truly experienced my salvation. Loving your neighbor does not give life, it's proof of life. Now, when the lawyer, like us, reads this passage or hears this parable, he does what we want to do often. He wants to re-identify some things. He wants to place some limits on this whole idea of neighborly. Now, in this section of the sermon, let me give credit. Tim Keller, in his outstanding work on radical neighboring that we studied a year ago, gives us the following limits. First of all, when we hear who is our neighbor, we want to limit the who. You know, not too long ago, the elders invited three of the leaders of God's pantry. For those of you who don't know what God's pantry is, God's pantry is the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. It is the thing that we've been pursuing for the last eight years, a place in the middle of this valley where if you're in need, any need, food, 
uh, water, clothing, counseling, temporary housing, job fairs, whatever it is, we wanted to be that place where we knew people, their first thought, those who were in need would be, I can go to this place and they will not judge me, but they will help me and they will give relief to my wounds. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. My interest lies in how we Christ followers respond to a fallen world who oppresses us. And as I watch this nation become more and more divided, where even churches become so possessed with politics that it would appear to outsiders that our real hope and security is in this world, not in the world to come. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.